Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. I had to go about it, write it out, and find it myself. And there's some stories I can tell you. It's the final word story time. Number 148. We're into September. We're into the final month of the English summer. I'm Adam Collins. Jeff's with me as always. Mm -hmm. We're going to record a show that focuses today primarily on new numbers. It is going to be one that I guarantee will be of interest because I know my answers are pretty good. Hello. Okay. Okay. I think my answers are pretty good as well. There's some interesting stuff happening here. There won't be as many numbers. This is more in the theme of the last few weeks where we've tried to keep things relatively in control, although I say that with the caveat that every time we say that it gets out of hand. But uh, (laughs) after this week, because I'm still on the road and all the rest of it, after this week I'll be home, you'll be home and we'll be able to concentrate in September on trying to to wrestle the waiting list a little more under control and and other things. A lot of people have joined up over the last few months. So there's there's a fair bit of admin that needs to go on in Storytime World to make things work. And I think September is going to be Storytime Month. It's going to be big Storytime energy through September before the World Cup starts. Yeah, it's 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 uh it's difficult to square, isn't it? Because in September we've got some massive interviews as well. We're still trying to get our archive eps out. We're doing the director's cut of calling the shots. We're starting a, a new segment on the show that I won't I won't say much more about yet. But there is a new thread of show coming too. So it can be hard to balance it all off. But we have committed to clearing the waiting list to the extent to which we can through yeah the next five or six weeks, and we might even do a couple of double shows i mean that it's ambitious because even getting one off the ground can mm. sometimes be difficult but there might be some weeks we we try and do two we have we have revisits to deal with and so that means that you know, there might need to be a bit more time allocated to story time stuff on the feed so that's the month in which it's probably going to happen but for this month <laughs> and for this week let's get right into it at the mm. earliest possible time this is the game we like to call Nerd Pledge! Nerd Pledge. It's the game that we play with the nice people on the internet who fund this program by sending in contributions voluntarily, financially. And those things, those contributions have a number and that number's not the number you would expect. It's a different number. It's a specific number. It's a boutique number. And the number relates to cricket and we don't know how and we have to work it out. That's the game. It's a reverse quiz. You quiz us. Andrew Perrin is our first Nerd Pledger for this week. The number is $6.80. It's in USD. That means the number is 680. Decimal could be anywhere, could be cut up, carved up in any number of ways. But he says this, I don't want you or Adam wasting precious time wandering down blind alleys. So the number is 68. So the strike off the zero, it's 68. And the clue is dusty old fart which is not what we usually say. So we usually say dusty old bastard on this show. So is this a, is this a deliberate steer? I don't know, but that's the clue. Yes, yes, I, I, I liked the clue. It's not straightforward, but it is a round number being 68 and that has meant that I've been able to look at a few different bits and pieces on lists that I don't always go to. And I did get some support from our Brains Trust with this to acknowledge them on the way through and I'll name check a couple of them. And for those who are newer to the show, the Brains Trust to our Nerd Pledge CSI crew who have been providing a bit of support to Jeff and me through the last couple of months when this is required. Well, with the numbers that are especially tricky or the clues that are of needing more horsepower mm-hmm. and they um, give that to us. Right, so the first idea they come up with has ended up giving me my favourite part of this, all by accident. So CK Naidu um, played first-class cricket at the age of 68. Like, that's an impressive thing. I'll mm-hmm. tell you more about that performance. Or um, and- it's it's an indictment on 
the status of which games are given first class status, well, one or the other. Well, well, funny you mention that. He's not the oldest player to play first class cricket. And this, okay. this I tell you, is worth it. Raja Singh was 72 years of age and 194 days when he made his first class debut. This vaguely rings a bell. Like maybe we've... Maybe we've mentioned this in passing. It sounds slightly familiar. 72 years old playing okay. first-class cricket. Okay. Tell me more. Okay. Well, it's certainly not, not on an episode that I've been on, so indulge me. Okay. He was captaining the Bombay Governor's Eleven, for he was the governor of Bombay, <laughs> which stands to reason. That is an easy way to get into the side. Yeah. Against the Commonwealth Eleven at Braybourne. Now, this was a game played in November 1950. What he did in the game is almost immaterial. He, he did bat number nine. He, according to the report, and there are different reports on this game uh, which say different things. One says he batted number four and made nine. Another says he batted nine and batted and made four. I'm, I'm certain it's the latter because eventually mm-hmm. I found the scorecard, which took um, longer than you might imagine. I thought this would be, you know, given it stands out as a record, the oldest first-class cricketer, something that people have Googled before. Evidently not. So he makes four. And he's, uh, he's not bowled by Jim Laker, although he is dismissed by Jim Laker. This is a younger um, Laker in, in 1950. He was uh, caught in the slips by George Emmett on that score of four. Um, then he promptly did not take the field for the rest of the fixture. He was uh, retired absent ill um, in the second dig and he handed over the captaincy armband. But he did play this first-class fixture in 1950, having been born in 1878. Consider that. Born in 1870. He would have been 22 at the turn of the century. Jeez. And he played a first-class game in 1950. I mean, what, what's 72 years ago from now? Uh, before, what, what year are we in? We're in... Christ, 23, so it would be 1951. Imagine, imagine players from 1951 were getting around playing first-class cricket at the moment. They'd remember Basically, the Jim Maxwell. He, he was born in 1950, yeah. right? You're right. Yeah, imagine Jim was turning out for his first-class debut right now. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, okay. You get a feel for it, right? Yep. The other record here is that there the was commentary a would be good. Year. He could stand it slip and just do the whole game. <laughs> Great. Well, so it might have been with, with Laker. So Laker was the bowler. A 44-year age gap between, um, between the bowler and the batter who he dismissed, which is another record, clearly. This had first-class status and World Series cricket did not. Dennis Lilly, eight for <laughs> nah. The rest of the world tests, nah. Getting Garfield sober's at, nah. But this old bloke rolling out from the long lunch yep. and, and taking off the ceremonial sash to take strike. Yeah, that's fine. No worries. Chalk it up as a first-class wicket for Big Jim. Oh, and he was, a, he, was a, he was a serious operator, Raja Singh, I should say. You know, governor of Bombay, the first governor of Bombay after mm-hmm. partition. But before that, he was the prime minister of Jammu and Kashmir. So, you know, he made a big contribution. We mm. shouldn't um, diminish that. But making himself cap- – it's like if Bob Hawke, when he was Prime Minister, mm. had made himself captain of the Prime Minister's Eleven. He had more of a claim on it, I'm tipping, <laughs> um, given he'd played for the ACT in the 1950s when he was a young union official at the ACTU and did play for the ACT. Um, yeah. Unfortunately, none of those games have list day status. It would have been great had, you know, Bob Hawke had a quick info page that had list day games, but not to be. <laughs> so, I mean, look, there are a lot of people who did – good and impressive things in their careers that doesn't mean that they should be recognised as first-class cricketers. You know, right, Neil Armstrong right. probably didn't deserve to be a walk-up <laughs> start in a first-class cricket match <laughs> <laughs> you know, in 1970, you say, when he, he just ticked off a pretty big career milestone. So back to Andrew Perrin's number, 68 or 680, 680 meaning 68. The, the reason we got to this because CK Naidu um, turned out at 68 and would have been no less – well – I say no less ridiculous for the record, but at least, of course, he had a substantial career. He made his first class debut in 1916 for the Europeans against the Hindus, CK Naidu, and was still playing. In 1963, how different the world would have felt mm. in India. From You know, you consider what 1916 in India felt like, you know, middle of the war where so many people perished, you know, well and truly before independence and, and, and so on, to 1963. Anyway, he was playing for the Mahastra Governor's Eleven, so another one of those Governor's Elevens, at a Red Inca. 10 not out against an attack that included Mancad, Borde, and Wadika. Um, so, you know, not, not jobbers. 
He bowled an over as well in the second innings and was dismissed for one to Ajay Wadaka, um, who would later go on to become the captain of India's side, who triumphed famously in 1971 in England. So, you know, is he a dusty old fart? Hardly. But, you know, I feel like this is rich pickings for us. Old men playing games that are classified as first class. Naidu yeah. hadn't played a game at all. Um, for the five previous years and he was slotted into this 11 for, for one last game. It's even ridiculous that he was playing games in his early 60s, but we'll you know put that to one side for the sake of this particular example. 68 was also a, a famous number for a long time for it was the highest score made by a number 11 in test cricket. Richard Collins, 68 not out for New Zealand against Pakistan at Auckland in 1973. It contributed to a 151-run stand with Brian Hastings across 155 minutes. That was also the record. So, unfortunately, that's been overtaken a couple of times. 68 not out is still number five. So, curse you, James Anderson, Zahir Khan, Tino Best and Ashton Agar, who sits at the top, of course, with his 98 mate on Testaboo in 2013. Some other bits and pieces here. Glenn Finkeld helped out by saying... Bass Winder Sandu had a highest score against the West Indies of 68. Uh, why is that relevant? Because of the dusty old fart reference. Buzz Winder, get it, get it? Uh, and his highest score was 68 and the number okay. is 68. He also said, we might be sailing a bit close to the wind, but William Quaife, test highest score of 68. Then Matt May, and I really like this. There is a first-class venue in Huddersfield called Fart Town. You no. could say Fart Town if you wish to say okay. it that way. F-A-R-T-O-W-N. That's fart-own, though. That's that's like a fart-own is when you admit to having done the fart, presumably. You know, is, is, that, that's have who, you owned that's the fart? Who. I'm going with Fart Town. Um, there were 76 first-class matches played at Fart Town in Huddersfield between 1873 and 1955, and I saw that Percy Holmes made an unbeaten 220 there, which is significant. Mm-hmm. It was also a ground where uh, it's quite unusual because I didn't play first-class games there from 55 onwards, but from 1974 until 1982, Yorkshire would play one game per year there in the John Player League, which were the TV games that were on, on Sunday. So they used mm-hmm. it as effectively their, their TV home ground for, for eight seasons. So I thought that was interesting given wind – Dusty old fart, fart town. You know, mm-hmm. not so bad. And and it sits in a in a genre of towns. There's there's shit town, of course. The the amazing documentary series that was made by the serial podcast people. Um, yes. There's yes. there's town, which was the musical, wasn't it? That then Tripod rewrote a version of Town, the musical. And then there's Fart Town. So put them all together. Maybe they could be sister cities <laughs> in some kind of uh, you know, a, a reaching hands across the ocean sort of situation. Yeah. Just some cap stuff to finish. So cap 68 uh, for England was Gregor McGregor, uh, mm. the two-sport Scottish international that we've we've spoken of recently, played rugby and cricket for Scotland in the 1880s and 1890s. I think we did that answer about two or three months ago. Yeah. He was at Cambridge and a long-term at Middlesex around the turn of the century. Played for Scotland against Australia initially, then eight test matches from 1890 to 1893. 17 dismissals and 96 runs, over 550 first-class dismissals as a wicketkeeper, batting average of 18, three first-class tons. Uh, and um, he's in the pavilion at Lords, where there's the, the portrait of A.E. Stoddart, a finer word fave, keeping wicket in the Stoddart portrait is Gregor McGregor standing behind him. So that's quite a nice little touch there, hmm. which apparently I, I didn't know. I, I'm not familiar with the uh, the, um, the Stoddart portrait in the long room. I'll look for it next time, but it, it's still hanging somewhere there in the pavilion. Maybe not the long room, but in, in the pavilion more generally. I landed on Jack Reedman here. Um, I, I wanted to tell the story of the 68th player to play for Australia. His one test match being a great, but... It's such a it, – it, well, it's, it's clearly not him, right? He's a, a multiple sport champion around that same time, around the, the end of the um, 19th century. So he's clearly not a dusty old fart. And his story will come another time. And of course, you can tee us up for that if you're a new pleasure or, or changing a number. You can get us into the Jack Reedman tale. But I'm going to leave it there. And I think that we're we, – CK Naidu is the most likely – being the 68-year-old champion who went on to still play first-class cricket. I'm glad we now know about Raja Singh at 72, uh, and I'm glad we can still uh, maintain the rage about games having or not having first-class status. Andrew Perrin, 680 USD. I like that. Um, Thank you, Andrew. You can get in touch if you want to steer us in a certain direction for a revisit. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. 
We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Hi, I'm Ian Chappell. You're listening to The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. Now, we do some pretty good things with the numbers, but sometimes the numbers do some pretty good things to us. And this mm-hmm. this is an incredible thing that happened on the Nerd Pledge list. So it's sequential. It's first come, first served after you've had your first number particularly. You go on the list, you send your number in, it goes on the list, they get done in that order. That's how it works. And so sometime, this must have been last year, George Norman sends in a pledge ah. of $26. Ian Colvin sends in the very next pledge, $2.74, right? They're next to each other on the list. They have nothing to do with each other. They don't know each other. They live in different countries as far as I remember. They're both repeat pledges. They've they've been on the show before and they're sitting there next to each other for months waiting to come up. And then in Storytime 129, we do a story about Zahir Abbas, the great Pakistani player. And the lack of respect that is put on his name when people talk about the greats of the game, um, that he's rarely in the conversation, although his career suggests that he should be. Both of these pledges were waiting for a Zahir Abbas story. So George Norman writes in at the time when we do the story and he says, oh, you know, I've got a pledge coming up later on the list. $26 was 26 because 26 is the 26th letter in the alphabet. Z was Zahir's very imaginative nickname that he was given during his playing career. And George said, I, I fully agree with the pledger at the time, Basab Majumdar, that Zahir was underappreciated given his record. Having seen him play for Glamorgan, I've always had a soft spot. To avoid repetition, he says, feel free to have a free hit whenever the number reaches the top, safe in the knowledge that no matter how obscure you go, no revisit will be required. <laughs> now, at the same time, on the same day, Ian Colvin writes in and says, oh, I, I sent 274, which hasn't come up yet, but you've just done the Zahir Abbas story. 274 was Zahir Abbas's highest test score. So he says, my pledge will remain Zahir, but you can spend the time you would have spent talking about him providing us with any story that takes your fancy that should feature a bespectacled cricketer. So we get two completely unrelated Zahir Abbas fanatics who sit next to each other on the list with different numbers and then they both say, have a free hit, and here we are. (laughs) And I like that Zed comes up as well. I saw on the weekend that Zed Zazelja, the former... ACT senator and minister in the Morrison government has been talking about making a comeback to the parliament, which is fairly comical, really, to which I simply responded, Zed's dead, baby, Zed's dead, that great, <laughs> um, that great line from Pulp Fiction. Um, so, uh, well, okay, well, you're first with George Norman, great man. He's been a lovely part of our community before. So you've got the freest of free hits with the number 26 for you. Whose motorcycle is this? It's not a motorcycle, baby. It's a chopper. It's a chopper. Now, okay, so 26. Well, I'll get to 26 in time, but I'm going to start with 25 because I want to go back to where I was last week, Adam. Uh, The Maurice Kellerman story had some other threads from it that I thought might be interesting to follow up. So if you didn't listen to the story about the greatest French cricketer, whoever lived, listen to Storytime last week and catch up there. What I didn't get into was that Maurice Kellerman, before he moved to Paris and became France's greatest cricketer, I, I mentioned that he played Premier Cricket for St Kilda, mentioned that he took seven for 28 in his final match, didn't go into any more detail on that Premier Cricket career, which was brief but interesting. Didn't say that he bowled out Port Melbourne for 38 that day when he took his seven for, by the way. They, uh, his team, St Kilda, make five for 222 in reply. Win on the first innings, uh, Maurice doesn't even get a bat. But So he plays across three seasons, for St Kilda. First game against University, makes nine, takes two for 30, that's it for the season, his one game. Then he, he plays a bit more in the second and third seasons. And they don't seem to realise that he's, he's okay with the cue because he, he often doesn't bat. But he does a pretty decent job a lot of the time. Second match against Carlton, he does make 53. That's the highest score that he'll make. He makes 21 and five and barely gets a bowl against South Melbourne. 18 not out and takes one for six against Richmond. So he's, he's, he's not quite... Um, thanks for coming, but he's he's bowling few overs and, and batting down the order. Essendon makes a duck and, and does not bat in the other innings, doesn't bowl in the first dig and then takes three for nine square root figures in the second innings. 
takes two for 16 against Coburg, four for 44 against Richmond, does the toffs at Brighton with three for 14 and then two for 20, making them follow on. Williamstown, two for 41. Uh, and then he, in his third season, has his horror game against Hawksburn where he makes a duck and 11, doesn't take a wicket. The next game, thanks for coming, doesn't bat, doesn't bowl. And then has this dominant final match, March 1906, when he takes his seven for, that's his farewell, he leaves Australia. And so, you know, maybe he's he's just really started to get going mm. when he wraps up his career in Melbourne. But some points of interest across this Premier Cricket career that encompasses a dozen games. Plays all but one of those games with a fellow called Tom Horan. This is Tom Horan Jr., who's the son of Tom Horan, who played in the first Test match in ah. 1877. So they often bat together and bowl in tandem, I think, um, and they have, a, they have a few batting partnerships from what I can tell from the scorecards. The really bad game he has towards the end of his last season, he plays that match against Don Blackie. Now, this doesn't make sense, right? Don Blackie, his name's on the stand at Junction Oval. He played for St Kilda. Yes. And Maurice Kellerman's playing for St Kilda. How did he play against Don Blackie? Well, and there's Bert Ironmonger who played for St Kilda and Shane Warne who played for St Kilda. We, we talked last week about the great spinners who played for St Kilda. But Don Blackie's in the opposition here. What's going on? Okay, so 22 times over a couple of seasons, Don Blackie plays for a team called Hawksburn up until March 1907. Then Hawksburn becomes Paran and he plays at Paran for another decade up to March ah. 1917. So he plays a dozen, 13 years, Don Blackie, for these clubs. And in March 1917, or the same club effectively. They, this is the, I, was, I was pondering that when it said Hawksburn. I've never heard of Hawksburn Cricket yeah. Club. And, you know, I used to love going past that, um, I was going to call it tube stop, that um, train stop as a kid. You know, Hawksburn. Near Ripponlee. Go the Hawks, Hawksburn. Yeah. Exactly, yeah, Ripponlee, Hawksburn. And, mm-hmm. um and a mate of mine stole one of the Hawksburn signs from the station for that reason. Hawthorne <laughs> <laughs> fan. They probably mm. spent a bunch of money replacing those signs over the years. So, yeah. Yeah. so Don Blackie retires from Premier Cricket at the age of 35 and then resumes playing huh. five years later on the advice of his doctor that he should be getting some activity. At 40, he decides to make a Premier Cricket comeback and whether it's his choice of club or the only club that will take him, he starts playing for St Kilda. So his name is on the grandstand at St Kilda and he, he goes on to play for them until the age of 51. So he comes back in 1922. He gets picked for Victoria in 1924 for the first time, doesn't play first-class cricket until the age of 42. We know that he makes a test debut at the age of 46, the oldest to do it, plays three test matches in the, the Ashes belting of 1928-29, keeps playing for Victoria until he's 51, and so on that basis, he's, he's a club legend, having played 234 Premier matches, well over 100 of them are for St Kilda. He's on the grandstand for St Kilda, despite having not played a match for them until he was 40 years old, which is a, a part of the Don Blackie story that I admit that I'd missed. It's, it's an mm. extraordinary footnote. Anyway, not sure how many players have played three test matches and lost three test matches. There'd be a few, but it's probably not a huge list. Um, he's the equal 10th for the most wickets in three test match losses. He took 14 <laughs> wickets across the three losses, so did okay. And the last interesting bit is that on Maurice Kellerman's best day with the bat when he made the 53 against Carlton, he got out that day to a leg spinner named Warren, who I also didn't know about. Tom Warren. And I thought, I've vaguely heard the name, but didn't know anything more about it. Started to have a look. Guess what? Started as a leg spinner and then worked on his batting. I was the only one to ever do that. Tom Warne played 39 times for Victoria from 1895 to 1912. 26 of those were in the Shield. He played games against Tasmania. He played against the A.E. Stoddart 11, indeed, in first-class cricket. He played against celebrity racist Archie McLaren's 11, the touring MCC and South African sides. He played for the rest against the Australian 11 a couple of times and, and does well in those games, takes wickets, makes 50s. And he goes on a tour of New Zealand in 1910, plays some tour matches and plays two matches against the full New Zealand representative side. So they're not counted as test matches, but they are listed as playing for a team called Australia, not the Australian 11, not the Australians, but Australia. So a bit like with um, when we had Andy Balburnie, how many games he played for Ireland yes. versus how many internationals has he played for the, you know, there is a distinction drawn there. I, I, I didn't know that a team called Australia, because typically on the scorecard, it's Australians or the Australian yes. 11, isn't it? 
Yes, but that's usually on a tour where they're playing test matches elsewhere. Um, and so on this, these are the, the highest matches on the tour, but they're not counted as test matches because of the relative strength of New Zealand at the time, which would annoy Jeremy Coney no end. So the point being, there is another leg spinner named Warren who has played for Australia. They're just technically not counted as tests, even though they huh. could be if there were a statistical re-evaluation of them. So he ends up staying in Carlton forever. And I'm assuming, you, I'm assuming you've established beyond any doubt that it's not a relation here. Uh, as, as far as I can tell, there's no relation, but yeah. um, it, it's, it's not a hugely, it's not a hugely common name, but it's not a hugely uncommon name. Um, mm. So there, there may be threads that, that other people could follow. So he, Tom Warren stays at Carlton forever, becomes the curator at Prince's Park, ends up dying at Prince's Park, having spent his life there. A long time before he dies, 30 odd years before that, his son Frank Warren is born, who is another leg spinner, who also plays for Victoria. So there are two predecessor leg-spinning Warns who play for the Vicks um, and plays a fair bit for Carlton as well and then goes to England and plays for Worcestershire for a few seasons. Um, does Frank Warn, the son of Tom Warn. So a couple of Warns running yeah. around. The what, what era would he... Do you know what era he was playing for Worcestershire? It would be... So he was born in about 1906 from memory, so probably in the 30s, I reckon. I think it's between yeah, maybe okay. 32 and 38 off the top of my head. Okay, okay, so not quite the era that... Hmm. Oh, hang on. No, it would have been the era that... Ah, that's okay. We'll talk about Tom Cuff another time. Okay, so so <laughs> anyway, the point being, and bringing us back to our number, the, the senior Warren, Tom Warren, had his standout season with the bat in 1898-99. At that point, nobody in Premier Cricket had ever made a 1,000 runs in a season. That year, Tom Warren makes 402 in innings against Richmond... And that is the bedrock for him reaching 1,011 runs in the season. Now, wow. the challenge that I was set here by George was to find one instance of 26, 126. 126 is what Tom Warren averages with the bat for the season when he made a thousand <laughs> runs for the first time in Premier Cricket. In a career where he came up against Maurice Kellerman, the great Frenchman, and there is your 26, George Norman. Uh, you said it could be as niche as I want, and that is as niche as I want. Beautiful. Nicely done. Well, with Ian Colvin, when he came back to us, and as you explained, he, um, uh, he Zahir Abbas inspired his pledge. All he wants me to do is to link 274 with a story of my fancy, but it should feature a big spectacled cricketer. Well, well he right? said it doesn't so, even have to be 274. He just wants a, a cricketer with glasses. Yeah, yeah, but I've kind of gone the other way on this. I've, I've, I've focused more on the 274 more than I have sure. the glasses, and I'll explain why as we, as we work our way through. Firstly, what a great attitude from Ian Colvin to kind of really get in the spirit of things, you know, what we're doing here at Storytime. It's about the stories, not so much about the, um, the, the game of... Um, cat and mouse i know that different pledges interpret it differently but i like this interpretation from ian i'm going to show my workings on this one so there have been 15 instances of 274 being made in a first class game so that's a pretty decent sample size i reckon in terms of someone wearing glasses you think that you know there'd be i don't know what it works out to be in general population and then you you apply it to cricket, but mm -hmm. I reckon, you know, one cricketer per team would be wearing glasses off the field or something like that. Yeah. Um, maybe more. Maybe um, well, more, I mean, um, almost yeah. everybody ends up wearing glasses eventually, so you could sort of count most right. of the population there, but maybe it's more whether they played wearing glasses. Yeah. Clive yeah. Lloyd Well, I didn't think this was going to break my way, though. I'm going through all of these players and none of them were glasses wearers. Mm. Justin Langer did... Did it in a Shield game. Martin Moxon for Yorkshire against Worcestershire in 1994. Stephen Fleming. Murray Goodwin made a 274 for Sussex. Maybe he had the beer goggles on from the night before. Notorious <laughs> um, party boy. Graham Pollock's very famous 274 against Australia at Durban in 1970. Of course, that was a test match. Mahaya um, J. Award, Mark Rambrakash. Ollie Pope made 274 against Glamorgan a couple of years ago. I don't expect they'll be making commemorative t shirts of that one. I was at that game. It was 700 apiece. Daniel Norcross and I were there doing something else. And it was the only time, I think, in first class history where there have been two 700s to start a game. It was a shocking pitch and um, a, a pretty. Um, uh, a pretty drab affair. But again, no no, no glasses for Ollie Pope, no glasses for the older boys I was looking mm -hmm. at. But then I did find one. Then I did find one, but there was a problem with it. The original member of the final word shit list 
Verinda Saywag as a young lad <laughs> for North Zone against South Zone in 1999, batting at number six in a Dewleap Trophy game, probably wearing his glasses. In a sign of what was to come, when he made big scores, he often did it quickly. 274 for 327 balls, hit 36 fours and, and four sixes. He went beyond his previous high score in first-class cricket of 187. And it was just his 1500th first class run. So, you know, quite young and new in, in 1999. But do I want to spend any longer talking about Saywag? No, fuck that guy. I, 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 that's it for Saywag. So a few nice glassless alternatives I want to skip through to here, Jeff, on the 274. Especially Jack Badcock, mm-hmm. who made 274 for Tasmania against Victoria. Now, we've spent a lot of time talking about Vic's bullying Tasmanians on this program in recent months. I've decided to wear a Tasmanian jumper today. I'm wearing a Cascade Lager hoodie on mm-hmm. the pod. I see which, that. Uh, my friends Tom and Laura got Rach and I matching Cascade Lager jumpers for our wedding, which is quite, quite lovely of them, being proud Tasmanians themselves. Now, Jack Badcock, a Tasmanian, obviously, made his 274 in Launceston in 1934 out of 429. That's a 64%er. That's not far away from, mm. from Bannerman. And he's only 19, you know, and it's against an attack including Percy Beams. He's more well-known for the three premierships he won on the trot for Melbourne between 1934 and 1941 on the footy. And he was, you know, forward pocket in the team of the century. There's a bar named after him at the MCG these days, the Percy Beams bar. Which one's that, Jeff? It's, it's in the remember. members. It's the one where the, um, where the, the Alistair Cook... 200 um, sadly oh, yes. replaced the Viverick yes, 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 yes. But back to Badcock. Maybe fitting Badcock, given that he played in the same era as Wally Hammond. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I, th- yep. um, I think we've linked uh, those, those two yeah. facts before. <laughs> yeah. 71 not out in the second dig here to secure the draw. So he made 345 runs across three days, bless him. Mm. So he's a total prodigy. But Clary Grimmett gets hold of him. And says, you can't keep playing for Tassie. You're not going to play for Australia. You've got to move to South Australia to play some shield cricket. And so he does. More opportunities. All made sense at the time. Made a triple ton against Victoria two seasons later. 325 of the best. Averaged 87 in that season. And so he gets picked the next summer for Australia. The summer of 36-37, which we've been returning to time and time again of late. But he's collateral damage after those two losses that start Bradman's reign as captain. Only makes eight runs in two tests and he's out. But given the time when like these test matches were played with so many tour matches interspersed between them, he had enough time to, to make a shield turn against New South Wales and get back in the team for the all-important fifth test match with the series tied at two apiece. Now, this was a timeless test so there could be no draw. Therefore, if Australia don't win this match, they're you know, conceding the ashes. They're back at the MCG where they had their famous win to get their momentum going on the, on the, on the sticky dog with Bradman's 270, Fingleton's 100 that we have spoken about so many times before. Well, in the second Melbourne test of the series, the fifth and final one, they make 604, Bradman 169, McCabe 112, and Badcock batting number five makes his maiden test ton, 118 in this vital match. Bill O'Reilly and, and Chuck Fleetwood-Smith do the rest and Australia complete this stunning come-from-behind series win with an innings and 200-run win. Now, Badcock keeps piling the runs on at home and gets a tour to England in 1938. But much as, as it is at the start of the 36-37 Ashes series, he just can't make runs. He um, plays four test matches at the start of the series and doesn't make it to double figures. So going well in the first-class stuff, but there's some mental block for him. And he's never picked again. So seven test matches, he has 11 innings in single digits and one innings in triple digits, the 118. So... Mm. Um, it's kind of that Pervez Akhtar energy from Derek Ishmael Khan after his 337, which we crunched the numbers on all those years ago. He kept smashing it in state cricket, made an unbeaten 271 against New South Wales later in 1938 and made 236 against Queensland just before the war broke out. But he called it quits in 1940 and he still would have been a pretty young man, right? He still would have only been about 25 at this point. Returned to his um, farm, his family's farm in Exton in Tasmania. Bradman loved him. 
as a cricketer and as a man. But And he was gutted that he wasn't able to make the most of his uh, talent, which is shown by his overall first-class average of 52, with 26 tonnes in 97 matches. So, you know, had he been an English pro and played the standard three, four, five hundred um, games of first-class cricket, he almost certainly would have been a shout for reaching 100 hundreds, but um, that wasn't to be for, for Jack Badcock. And it all got motoring for him as a teenager when he made that 274 against Victoria. I just want to finish on the sad story of Ken Farns as well. So he was capped 274 for England and right in our dusty old bastard zone, but he was a lot more than that. He played 15 test matches, so we don't really count him as a DOB, and he didn't wear glasses. On the contrary, he was an absolute dish, like almost like the English equivalent of uh, how we imagine Keith Miller with the shock of black hair, Now, big features and all the rest of it. Tall man, six foot five, and as I say, played 15 test matches for England. And he was also brought back into the team uh, for that Melbourne test of 1937. He'd been dropped and brought back for this winner-takes-all clash. So we had Badcock with his best test performance, his 118. Well, in that same innings, when England are conceding 600-plus, Farns takes his best test figures of six for 96 in 28.5 overs. So when you consider the carnage in that innings that he took six for 96. That's, mm. that's, that's quite considerable. And um, very sadly, uh, he joined the RAAF when the, when the um, RAF rather, not RAAF, the RAF when, when war broke out in 1941. But during a, a home night exercise in uh, later that year, he crashed and, and died and passed away at the age of 30. So both he and Badcock in, enjoyed special individual performances at the Melbourne Cricket Ground um, back in 1937. And a last little quirky Crick Info one for you, Jeff. Sean McGivens taught me how to work out birth dates for cricketers using Google and Crick Info. I'm not quite so good at the sophisticated search terms, but Sean is, little wonder. And being 274, I thought, well, what about the 27th of April? Are there any kind of glaring, obvious bespectacled cricketers here which could cap this off well there wasn't however there was a player by the name of William Owen Thomas who um, was the Dulwich captain again in that same era he was at school at Dulwich in the interwar period probably where I was playing in the last couple of days after the war he played a few games for Cambridge and against Cambridge for the MCC at Lords so only four first first class games and one of them at Lords that's that's pretty handy now that might have made for a decent story all on its own but the best bit I reckon is that William Owen Thomas on Crick Info has been designated the name Spongy Thomas as his first name. Ew. So we've got all sorts of weird names that Crick Info pick up and use as the first name, you know, not least Tip Foster. Monkey um, Hornsby. Monkey Hornsby. There's, there's lots of them. I think Spongy Thomas might have to go down as the very best. Oh, it sounds like Wally Hammond areas again. It sounds like yeah, a terrible quite. euphemism. Got a, got a bad <laughs> case of the old Spongy Thomas, if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. Oof. So, um, so that, that, there are my various options for 274 for Ian Colvin. I hope that he likes learning more about a man called Badcock mm-hmm. uh, and, and a man who um, you know, passed Thomas. away before his time, Ken Farns, who had that crossover moment in 1937. Well, there you go. Zahir Abbas has taken us to a lot of places today, a lot of unexpected places that he would never have imagined that he might take somebody to. Hi, my name's Kate Cross, and you're listening to The Final Word with Adam and Jeff. I've got one more new number. It's from Sinead Bird, and it is, in fact, a Julio pledge, but it's $3.50 in New Zealand dollars, and this might confuse you. Okay, a Julio is when someone doesn't want a nerd pledge, they just send in a normal amount. So this came in, it was $3.50. I thought, okay, obvious nerd pledge, $3.50, put it on the list, on we went, and then realised some weeks or months later, this was a point in time where when patrons started, the minimum, it was all in US dollars and the minimum was two bucks a month. That was that was our our thing, or, or that's where we'd set it. And when they, when they branched out to other currencies, they changed, they sort of made relative minimums. So they said for Australian or New Zealand dollars, that equals out to about three bucks 50. And so without us knowing about it, that had become the minimum in AUD or New Zealand dollars. And this was the first time somebody had sent through that minimum. So more 350s started appearing later and I realised that they were Julio pledges rather than nerd pledges. But 
This one stayed on the list because it was the first one I'd installed. Um, and I like the name as well, Sinead Bird. It's a, it's a pleasing sounding name. And because it had been on my list for so long, I couldn't quite bear to let go of it. So I decided to treat it as a nerd pledge, even though it wasn't originally intended to be. And with 350, 350, I thought if we make this 35, I think 35 is an interesting number, Adam, because it's the all-rounders number. Maybe not way back when, when, you know, bowling tended to dominate a lot more, 1800s and whatever, but say say since World War II. 35 is generally what we've set for all-rounders to say if you average above 35 with the bat and below 35 with the ball, that's the that's sort of the the really good all-rounder territory. Would that is that a fair statistical summary? Yeah, you, you sometimes hear people do that for 30, but I reckon, you know, 35 is pretty reasonable. Hmm. So I started looking at people who've done that all time in men's test cricket there are only 76 players who've done it I actually thought there would be more than that because I thought there'd be more anomalies in terms of like players with very short careers or players with long batting careers who then take one wicket or two wickets in a a rare bowling spell and and end up with an average under 35 so there there are some but there aren't as many as I suspected maybe there would be Alistair Cook's an obvious one we've talked about his bowling average of seven before and obviously averaged well above 35 with the bat. David Gower did it, Desmond Haynes, Ross Taylor, Mark Taylor, Marvin Adepartu. Gower is the first person I remember watching bowl. Now, I wonder whether the, the, whether the scorecards bolster this and prove this or whether I'm imagining it. But in the summer of 1990-91, there was a game where he bowled. I think it was a one-day international. And I remember flashing up on the screen, left-arm orthodox and being totally fascinated by this. I was like, mm. what on earth does this mean as a five-year-old or a six-year-old? Yeah. And my dad explaining to me that this is a, you know, I guess he would have said that this is, a, this is an off-spinner but bowling with the left arm. Mm. And, you know, because why do we use the term orthodox for left-armers when we don't use it for right-armers and all the rest of it? And my curious young mind never quite forgot that. So, And I've never thought about it since probably, but I do right now. David Gower being the man who introduced me to the idea of one bowling left-arm orthodox. I'm pretty sure we've had a nerd pledge in from Mel Shawley before about David Gower's bowling figures of one of his bowling stats. It might have been economy rate, something like that. Anyway, if you put a filter on it and say you need to have taken 10 wickets and batted 10 times to count on the list, then you whittle it down to 35 players in the men's game, five in the women's game. Unsurprisingly, Enid Bakewell is one of them. Molly, <laughs> Molly Hyde is one of them. Myrtle McLagan is one of them. And then there's uh, Carol Hodges. Those are all English. And the only Australian representative on the list is Peter Varko, who toured India and played 13 times in the 70s and 80s. The men's list, it's interesting the players who don't make it. So Ian Botham doesn't qualify on that list. Kapil Dev doesn't qualify. Richard Hadley doesn't qualify. Um, Hadley's batting average wasn't quite high enough. It was 28, I think, from memory. So you have the... The expected greats on the list, Sobers, Callis, Imran Khan, Jaya Surya, Shakib Al-Hassan, yeah. Doug Walters, Keith Miller, Tony Gregg, you know, the ones you'd expect to be around that 35, 35. A, 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 a couple of quite interesting names there. So Jaya Surya, I would have thought, had a bowling average in excess of 35. Mm. And Doug Walters is a quirky one, isn't he? I think he took 50 wickets in Test cricket and most of them were in were in single wicket mm. lots. Like he was the the quintessential golden arm. So yeah. he wasn't deemed an all-rounder. He was deemed a batsman who the ball would be thrown to when needing to break a partnership right. and had a knack of doing so. Whereas all the other names on that list are, are get that designation of all-rounder, don't they? Yeah, I, th- I think that's right. They're, they're ones who you, you think of in that way, right? And, and there are there are the classics like the earlier sort of era ones like Jack Gregory, um, the great Australian yeah. fast bowler who made 100 batting without gloves, Aubrey Faulkner, Warwick Armstrong, Charlie McCartney. Um, interestingly, Warwick Armstrong and Charlie McCartney both played against Tom Warne for <laughs> the Australian eleven when he was playing for the rest in those first-class games. The Honourable Sir Francis Stanley Jackson is on that list. Colin McCool, always one of the ah. great names in cricket. Hansi Cronier is on that list, which is uh, he's sort of floating around in his own category because of all of the associations with him. But there's that that sort of South African grouping with Callis and Brian McMillan. They all qualify on the list uh, playing contemporaneously in the 90s. That's really interesting. So Cronier and McMillan both averaged above 35 in Test cricket. Mm-hmm. Yep. It was a real South African band wasn't it where yeah. they came out to Australia in 93 94 and didn't have a single batsman who averaged in the 40s and so it was again this year or last year rather when they were there for three test matches and it was back to that again where in the middle of it though they had a whole bunch of guys who averaged in the 40s and into the 50s with 
with with Callis and and uh, Gary Kirsten and so on. But um, yeah, that that, that uh, that's interesting to me that well, there's this there's this gap there. The modern players who you'd expect to do it are interesting. So you'd expect Jadeja, you'd expect Ben Stokes, uh, you maybe wouldn't expect Colin de Grandhomme but he's on that list. Kyle Mayers used to be, but his batting's just dipped down to 32. So, uh, you know, he may yet get the opportunity to get back. Mohamed Hafiz was one who, who actually didn't surprise me. when I, I wasn't expecting the name, but when I saw yep. it, I thought, well, of course, you know, of course he would. Akshar Patel at the moment is on there. Mm-hmm. And then there's some real kind of oddball ones who you wouldn't think of. Asanka Gurusina is on that list, 35 really? and 35. Yeah. Uh, Bob Cowper is on that list, or Ted Dexter, not not once. I mean, Cowper did bowl a bit, but you wouldn't necessarily, they wouldn't leap to mind. Mushtaq Muhammad is one of them, Eddie Barlow, Simon Kadic, Darren Lehman, Jacob Oram are all on the 35 and 35, you know, above That, that tells a story again. It kind of goes back to that idea of what mm. we said with um, Doug Walters. Most of those are guys who simply Chipped didn't in. bowl enough overs to go around. Yeah, yeah they, were, they were, you know, I'm, I'm tipping that, I mean, I haven't got it in front of me, but Greg Blewett might have had a bowling average around 35 for that mm-hmm. reason. Ricky Ponting may have as well because they just simply didn't bowl too often. Uh, yeah. Although in the case of Lehman, um, did quite a bit of heavy lifting in Asia, same with Kadic. And Kadic's six for it at the SCG will help with that too. Yeah, and Oram yeah, did bowl um, a fair bit. Um, but he, yeah, sorry, Oram, Oram's more of that whole yeah. list there. Oram bowled the most comfortably, I reckon, as far as he would have been used. Oram would have been bowled occasionally or picked as a as the you know the, the fourth seamer in New Zealand teams. None of the others there were being picked as the fourth bowler. You know, they were the fifth or sixth mm. or seventh bowler. And of course, if you if you want to set that as your that's your mark for the true all rounder, Botham doesn't make it, Capel Dev doesn't make it, Richard Hadley doesn't make it. Who does? Shane Robert Watson, the greatest all rounder of all time, firmly on the list, <laughs> the thirty five and thirty five club for Sinead Bird, even though she didn't want a number or didn't probably doesn't know that she's getting a number. She's had a number. This is it. The forever underappreciated S R Watson. Uh, we're still yet to get him. On the podcast, bit of a white whale, isn't he? Yeah. We, we've talked a lot about at some point trying to get him. On we've never actually done anything much about it. We've just said that we should do it, and then yeah. not really pursued yeah. it. Yeah, we've been pretty lucky with those we've said we wish to get. We've, um, with with some rare exceptions, mm. they've, they've ended up on the pod at one stage or another. We'll keep doing that. So if you want to send us a nerd pledge, patreoncom slash the final word, uh, that can help us keep making the program. It's very easy to figure out once you get there or if you can't, just send us a message um, and we'll be able to help you out there. One sneaky little revisit just before we finish off because this is relevant to French cricket, Maurice okay. Kellerman, all the rest of it, because it was Ruto's original pledge of $2.10 with a direction to look at French cricket that took me to Maurice Kellerman last week. I knew that wasn't the right answer, but I thought it was a better answer. To get the right answer, I should just clarify, this is about another Australian French cricketer or French Australian cricketer. It's about Gustave McKeon, spelt like Patrick McKeon, our listener and final word 11 player, uh, M-C-K-E-O-N, although I noticed some people were trying to sort of Frankify it into like Macon, like M-A-C-O-N, but that's not actually his name. So he's known as Gus. He grew up in Perth. He's currently, I assume, playing cricket in Norwich at the moment uh, at some level. Family background means he qualifies for France. A year ago, last July, in the European qualifiers for the T20 World Cup, Gus McKeon opened the batting for France at the age of 18, made 76 against the Czech Republic, 109 against Switzerland, the youngest men's player to make a T20 tonne ever. Then he followed it up in his next game with 101 against Norway, becoming the only player ever to make back-to-back T20 international centuries, a distinction that he still holds. So he made 210 runs in those two games, which is Ruto's pledge of 210, followed up with 87 against Estonia, so nearly made it three tonnes on the trot. Um, His only low score of the tournament was four at the end of it. And then this July just passed, he played the Mdina Cup against Malta, Luxembourg and Romania, made a duck to start and then made 43, 79, 82 not out, 44 and four. So he's got 629 career runs for France, which is more than double the next best career total for any player for France. Um, He's still 19 years old and they've won eight of 11 games when he's been playing. So Gus McKeon, may you have a long career for the French. May we get him on the final word? Yeah, uh, the, find he, out the he story. He sounds like a future guest to me. Yeah, find out the story in more depth. 
beautiful. Also got one confirmation we'll do before we uh, hit stop on our recorder here from Jim Robertson, 330Jeff. Now, this Jim says he's one where he owes us an apology. I figured my nerd pledge had fallen through the cracks last week. I was settling in for a long flight, trawling for time passing content, and somehow episode 114 was sitting in my unplayed podcast feed. I was very happy to have some fresh story time for the flight. Jeff, you did a fantastic job, even more considering that my pledge really should have been 320 instead of 330. Now, the original clue, it came to a lovely end after flying out the gates with express pace only in the only interruption in the meantime came from a cat and uh, Jeff you theorised uh, uh, that the pledge was about Steve War and the team he captained from 1999 you caught the reference to Brett Lee and Simon Kadich and pretty much nailed the answer with the one comment that team with one or two changes plays for a few years less about War more about the team stability there was one other player in the clue Martin Love and between Brett Lee's debut on Boxing Day 1999 and Love's debut Boxing Day 2002 the only debut in 32 test matches is Simon Kadic, which of course was at Headingley in 2001. On the brilliant Discord community, uh, within days of starting to post there, um, Jim was offered tickets to the third test and invited to a meet-up at the pub. Truly incredible. Uh, Jim, it was um, uh, nice to um, uh, make your acquaintance at Leeds as well while we were there. That all came together quite nicely. Thank you, Jim. I'm glad I got that one right. I, yeah, I the express pace was Lee and the cat was Kadic, and I, I hadn't quite put it all together together but I, I'd got close enough for Jim to what are they what's the golf thing where they say ah oh, it's fine just take it as red that you were going to you're going to sink that last yeah, three inch putt which I think is bullshit by the way should make them make <laughs> them sink it play hard don't want it enough golfers that's what I've always said it's like the last day of the Tour de France oh no we're just gonna we're not going to challenge on the last bit it's just a ceremonial lap why not try to win the race you I always wonder enough. what would happen if what would happen if they fell off the bike yeah on the Champs-Élysées when they're yeah. swilling champagne, uh-huh. what would happen? I mean, I remember when Cadell Evans won in 2011, having this sort of uh, internal dialogue in my head. What if when having a glass of champagne poured, what if he's 200 yards from the line and hits mm. the deck and not enough time for them to stop and he loses the tour on that basis? Or they all, anyway. yeah, everyone else gets off and then picks him up and carries him across the line like cool runnings. Like, come on. Yeah. Yeah. Don't want it enough. Seems unlikely. Mm. That does seem <laughs> unlikely, but maybe maybe one day we'll see it. Anyway, that's it. That is the end of story time 148. If you want to play the game, patreon.com slash the final word. We've got a couple of weeks to figure out what we're doing for the incredibly uneventful non-milestone of story time 150, which hopefully will be nothing because it doesn't deserve it. But although people are sending in various suggestions about what we should do. And uh, aside from that, we've got 149 to worry about between now and then. That'll come up in a week's time. Plenty more stuff coming up in the feed. Hope to have your company over the next week or so. We'll see you soon. Have a nice weekend.